good morning. Let's stand together and hear from God's word as we begin our time of worship together. Psalm 2 calls us to worship, reminds us of who we are here to worship. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is a reminder for us that what is terrifying for God's enemies is comforting for God's children. He has set his king on Zion, and his king will rule and reign forever. So while the nations rage, let us rejoice. Rejoice that the Lord is king. This morning and today, Americans will celebrate and rejoice that we don't have a king in England. But as Christians, every Sunday and every day, we celebrate that we have a king in heaven who is ruling and reigning over all and will reign forever. So let us join our voices, lift our hands, and praise. Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up, lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice Thus the Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had purged our stain, he took his seat above. Lift up your
Yes, if Jesus reigns, if, if our Jesus is on the throne, our friend, our brother, our king, our Lord, God himself in the flesh, if he reigns, then, boy, what else can happen to us? What else is going on in the world that should trouble us? Of course, it seems troubling, but Jesus is on his throne. He reigns, and let us today rejoice. Amen? Amen. You can be seated. Well, welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. My name is Ryan Kelly, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet. Um, hopefully you got some coffee on your way in. Hopefully you saw that. It's kind of hard to miss. We're doing coffee in a little bit different way these days than we have before. Uh, it's supplied by Flying Star. Not for free, of course, but uh, free to you. So hopefully you got some coffee on the way in. Uh, and as we mentioned last week, this is not just something for this week on the 4th of July, but something we plan to do going ahead uh, in God's providence. And, um, and so we'd encourage you to come early to get some coffee and visit a little bit, either out there on the front porch or uh, in on the foyer after you get your coffee. If you're visiting with us, we would love to get to know you some more. We would love to know your name. We would love to kind of hear your story. Uh, I'll be up front after the service, and other leaders will be as well. And we're here to greet you, to pray with you, to just get to know you a little bit. Uh, you may have seen our website already, dscabq.com. If you haven't been there yet, there's all kinds of helpful information there that will help you get to know us. Um, you can also email us, and we can maybe get to know you a little bit better that way. Info at dscabq.com. Let us know how we can serve you. Well, one of the things we want to keep before you is the worship family night, the family worship night, rather, which is coming up in just less than two weeks, a Friday, July 16th. Uh, we mentioned that last week. We want to keep it on your radar and for you to have it on your calendar uh, in lieu of us having VBS this year, we'll have a family worship night, which will have a lot of the VBS-like music. If you've been to one of our VBSs, especially that Friday night where parents join their kids, it is such a sweet, lively time of singing and celebration together. Um, I, I'm biased. My wife's involved in it, but uh, I think it's a great time for both adults and kids. So you families with kids, um, not just you, but especially you, put this on your calendar and plan on being with us. No need to RSVP. Just come. And in fact, we'd encourage you to invite someone to come with you. Well, let me pray for the rest of our service. Please bow with me. Yes, Lord Jesus, you reign. We thank you for that. We rejoice in it today. We pray that you would help our affections to be aligned with the truth that we've already sung, that you are this world's king, and we should rejoice. Lord, we thank you for your sovereign goodness throughout this week. You've ordered our steps. You've provided and protected We've seen your grace over our sins once again. Your patience is on display everywhere as sinners, both redeemed and not, continue to go along with, uh, without your judgment. You are patient and kind and tender, and we thank you for that. Lord, we sometimes sing, tune our hearts to sing your praise, and we say that now. Tune our hearts, Lord, to sing your praise today because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we do rejoice and we should rejoice, but we don't always rejoice as we should. Often we are distracted or we have misplaced hopes. 
So let's stand now and take this opportunity to confess that together. It'll be on the screens. Say this with me. Almighty God, we confess that we are still held back by earthly cares and can't fix our minds and hearts on heaven. Lord, help us believe that you can abundantly meet our needs in this life and beyond. Lift our minds above these temporary perishing things and fix our hopes and wills on service to you, continually growing in grace until we become full and complete in Christ. We long to lay hold of the eternal kind of life you've promised to us and made available to us by the blood of your Son. May our lives reflect the longing in our hearts. Amen. May our song reflect those same longings. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes upon from His command? And what will keep us to the love of Christ in which we stand. No sink. No sink.
confession say amen yes as I was considering what songs to sing this morning I came across uh, a little trivia fact for you all that Isaac Watts when he was reflecting on Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 where Paul says that he boasts only in the cross then he wrote these famous words that we're about to sing so I had another song planned for this spot I told Chase I said well we have to sing when I survey the wondrous cross now because that's what Isaac Watts would have wanted. So let us join Isaac Watts, let us join Paul and the Holy Spirit in boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Pray with me again. Yes, Lord, we survey that wondrous, 
horrible cross afresh today, and we marvel at love so amazing, so divine, that demands our all, and also invites us into a throne of grace to ask for help and to give you thanks. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything, a time to rejoice, a time to be sorrowful, a time, Lord, to ponder. And on this Independence Day, Lord, we thank you again for the relative freedoms that we enjoy in this country that are not a given among the nations of this world or in history. Freedom to worship you without fear of punishment or threat. Freedom to share Christ with others Freedom to believe what you have called us to believe. Freedom to call you our supreme Lord and not another. Lord, these are freedoms that we thank you for. We thank you for the ideals that were once declared and written down at our nation's founding. Ideals that we have not always lived up to very well as a country. We acknowledge that. But Lord, despite our failings and despite our inconsistencies, these ideals of old were pretty good. And we're thankful. And we're thankful for your sovereignty over the affairs of men and women. You are sovereign over the hearts of rulers. You are sovereign over our comings and goings. You are sovereign over where we live and under which circumstances. And for all things good, Lord, we thank you. And we pray for our, well, for our freedom to live as Christians in days ahead. Because we want to live for your glory, Lord. Because we want to confess you freely as our Lord. And because we want others to join us in that freely. And so we thank you that Paul gave us a model in 1 Timothy 2. And he urged that prayers would be made for all people, not least those in high positions of authority, that we as Christians might lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. So we pray for that, Lord. We pray for legislation and leaders in days ahead that will, will allow your people to lead a peaceful and quiet life. And as we ask you for that, Lord, we also acknowledge the responsibility that we are to lead a peaceful and quiet life. And some of us might need to hear that afresh today. That you call us, Lord, not to strife and not to troublemaking and not to warring, but a peaceful and quiet life, dignified and godly in every way. Because you desire people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You desire for all people, all kinds of people, those in lofty positions and those in low positions, those who are rich and those who are poor, you desire for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we pray for that. And we pray for wisdom as your people in this fallen world. We pray for wisdom as a people with dual citizenship as we say, yes, we live here. We are in this country and yet, we are citizens of another place and time. We are citizens of heaven, and we thank you for that. We pray for wisdom to live out our dual citizenship in a way that reflects your truth and our calling. 
And Lord, we thank you most of all for the spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. Perfect freedom, true freedom. We thank you for the series in Galatians where we've spoken of being free in Christ. The gospel is free for those who are in Christ. And the gospel frees those who are in Christ. And if the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. Free to worship him. Free to flee from sin. Free to live out the Spirit and his ways. Free to happily worship you today. May we do so, Lord. May we listen to your word in just a bit freely and under your great pleasure because of Jesus, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Let us stand now and continue in prayer through song.
Yes, Lord, we do pray that, that you would be our vision, that you would be what we are, what we're looking at. God, so many of us are coming in here this morning and we've been looking at other things. We have, been, we have had our eyes fixed on other things that we think are more lovely than you. Lord, use this time to remind us that you are all we have. You're all we need. You're all that matters. Some of us even for the first time. Use your word and your Holy Spirit this morning to accomplish that. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be finishing the book of Galatians today. So if you've got a Bible, we're in Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen as I read them. It'll be good for you to, to follow along. It's always fun when you get to finish a whole book of the Bible. This has been a really sweet series like Ryan prayed. And this is a, a really wonderful passage for us this morning. So Galatians 6, we're going to be in verse, uh, start in verse 11. We'll go all the way through the end of the book, verse 18. So everybody there? Galatians 6? All right, I'm going to read these verses. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. That's God's word. If you are familiar with courtroom proceedings, and by that I mean like me, you have watched one or two courtroom dramas on TV at some point. If you're familiar with how it goes in a courtroom, you know that after all of the evidence has been presented and all of the witnesses have been heard, all of the laws have been considered, and both sides rest their case, there's one more important step before the jury goes off to deliberate, and that is the closing arguments. The closing arguments are often the most dramatic and passionate part of the whole proceeding. Each lawyer gets up and, and they try to summarize everything in the trial up to that point, all of the facts, all of the laws, and they try to present it in a way that is compelling and persuasive, trying to lead the jury to come to the right conclusions. And that is how this closing section of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches functions in this letter. It's something of a closing argument, much in the same way. If you've been with us through this whole study, you would remember how this argument has developed, how, how the case has been laid out through this whole book. Chapters 1 and 2, or, or thereabouts, you could say, are about the chief witness in this case, the Apostle Paul. And he was at pains to express that this gospel was not a man-made gospel. It was one that he received from Jesus Christ himself. 
So to, to depart from Paul would be to depart from Paul's gospel. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we get Paul making his defense of the gospel itself, him explaining what is this gospel, this beautiful doctrine of our being justified or being made right with God through faith alone and not through our works. He develops that argument by bringing in Old Testament examples. He does theological reasoning. He even uses the Galatians' own experience to establish that this, this is the gospel. It's faith alone. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he starts to command us in light of the gospel and what it looks like to walk in step with the spirit that we have received by faith. So chapters five and six have been a lot of imperatives, a lot of exhortations, a lot of this is what it means to bear the fruit of the spirit in your life, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And now here at the very end of the letter, this is where just like in a courtroom, he's going to take all of those ideas and he's going to bring those themes up one more time. He's going to make one final conclusion and it is wonderful. So we're going to look at this passage in three parts this morning. We're going to first look at verses 11 to 13. We'll call that section old motives. And then verses 14 to 16, we will call that new creation. And verses 17 to 18 are final words. So that's where we're going this morning. Old, creation, or old motives, new creation, final words. So first, old motives. Paul's going to begin his conclusion by condemning the false teachers for their bad motives. But before he gets into that specifically, this section begins with a really interesting detail. Verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So for this to really make sense, you've got to understand what what it was like to write a letter in the ancient world, especially an important letter. If you needed to write an important letter to somebody else, usually you would not write it yourself. You would hire a scribe, someone that was trained in the art of writing. And so what you would do is you would dictate to them what you wanted them to write down, and they would write it down verbatim as you said that. We know that the Apostle Paul used scribes probably for all of his letters. If you look at the uh, end of the book of Romans, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to turn there, Romans chapter 16, verse 22, the scribe, the guy that wrote the letter, he actually greets the church that is in Rome. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now we know Tertius didn't write the book of Romans. We know Paul did, but, but Paul gave him a chance to say, hey guys, And he wrote it therein at the end of the letter. But something that Paul would often do at the end of his letters is he would take the pen from the scribe and he would write a little greeting himself in his own hand. You could see this at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Or Colossians 4, 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Do you remember our study in Second Thessalonians? Part of the trouble that this church was facing was that some false teachers had been probably forging letters from the Apostle Paul and telling them all kinds of crazy stuff. And so Paul writes at the end of Second Thessalonians chapter 3:17, "I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write." So you can see in all those cases, he's he's kind of signing the letter at the end. And and we even do this. You know, you print out something. Well, you still want to sign it with your own pen. And Paul says here that you should know what my signature looks like. You should know. Okay, this is a mark of authenticity. 
So when Paul would write these letters and the scribe would write them down, what part of that process would be is as soon as the letter was done, the scribe would actually right there write copies of that letter. I think as Paul was writing these letters, he knew that he was writing down the word of God. He was writing down scriptures. And so they would make copies there. And then when they would send it to the church, wherever it was, that church would also make copies of Paul's letter and distribute it around to other churches. And then they started compiling those copies of the letters. And that's how we ended up with the New Testament that we have today. But even as they were copying those letters, it was so important to them that they would copy it down verbatim that they even included the parts where Paul says, I'm picking up the pen now and writing in my own hand. And just as an aside, that's a really, really good mark. One more of the many reasons that we have reason to be confident that the New Testament is authentic, that Paul really did write that. If you were writing a fake, if you were writing some kind of forgery, you probably wouldn't think to include some mundane detail like Paul greeting them in his own hand. But the point is that this was common for Paul. This was typical. He would pick up the pen at the end. He would sign it in his own name. What's unusual about Galatians is that Paul calls attention to his handwriting. This is verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So he was saying, look at how big this is. Now some people think that that was how Paul always wrote, that he had big, ugly handwriting. And you know, scribes, they would write in a really, really tight script because paper was expensive back then. And some people go as far as to say the reason that Paul wrote with big, ugly handwriting was because he had some problem with his eyes. And that would maybe make sense with what we said could be possible, uh, the bodily ailment that brought him to Galatia in the first place. So some people say, yeah, he just always wrote that. He couldn't see well, so he wrote really big so he could see that. Other people have all kinds of other theories about why Paul would write really big. I don't really think that it's any of that. I I don't think that Paul was saying, I just write bad. I think, no, he's saying... What I'm about to say to you is really important. So I'm going to write it big. This is the first century equivalent of putting this in all caps. And bolded. And underlined. And italicized. With seven exclamation points at the end. You ever get an email like that? You know, This person wants you to know that they're yelling at you. And that's what Paul is saying. Here, look at how big I'm writing. This is serious. Pay attention. And so what's he going to say? As I said in verses 12 and 13, he's going to condemn these false teachers for their bad motives. And I've titled this whole section, Old Motives. And part of that is going to come up in our next point about the new creation. So these old motives belong to the old order. But I'm also calling it Old Motives because it's important to see that these motives that these false teachers have, they've been around forever. They were around 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this letter. In fact, they were around even before that. You see it coming out in the Old Testament. I've been reading through the book of Isaiah in my own quiet times, and, and I was struck that Isaiah condemns the false prophets of his own day for these same bad motives. But the point of that is it's been around for a long time, and it's going to be around today. So that's why we need to pay attention, because there is nothing new under the sun. These old motives and the false teachers that have them are going to always be around. And so we need to pay attention to what they are, so that we can identify false teaching in this age. And so that we can avoid the false teaching and the false teachers that are promoting it. So as we look at verses 12 and 13, I see three bad motives, three old motives that these false teachers have. The first is self-promotion. So beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh 
who would force you to be circumcised. So remember, the circumcision is the, the, uh, a shorthand of referring to their whole false teaching, that they wanted to make these people conform to the Mosaic law and all of its, its strictures. But why does Paul say that they want to make them be circumcised? Because they want to look good. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. And how are they going to make a good showing in the flesh? By getting a big crowd on their side. A big crowd to embrace their teaching. Because if you can get a big crowd and all these people are coming and saying, wow, that guy, he must know what he's talking about. Look at how many people are coming. If there's this many people, it must be true. It must be working. And these false teachers, they want that. They want a crowd and they want to be made much of. They want want people to honor them. They probably even want people to give them money because of the honor that they have. In our own day, this often looks like men getting up to preach who seem much more like motivational speakers or business CEOs or Instagram influencers than they seem like pastors. What they want is to be influential. What they want is to be powerful and successful. They want to draw a crowd. And so everything about their own image and the way that their church feels and looks, it is all about making them look good, making them look cool and attractive and relevant. Even if it means the Sunday morning gathering turns into a circus and the true marks of the church, the right preaching of God's word and the right administration of the ordinances, they have just fallen completely to the wayside. They don't care because they're not actually in it for God or for God's people. They're in it for themselves. They want to make much of themselves. That's how it looks in our own day. I think we can think of some examples of how that looks in our own day. In Paul's time, it didn't look like Instagram influencers. It looked like false teachers trying to get a crowd and convince them that they all needed to get circumcised. And I think if we took some of the false teachers today and we gave them a time machine, they would go back in time and say, guys, that's not the way to do it. You're not going to grow your church by preaching circumcision. Just get some cool sneakers. But it's actually the same thing. Because it wasn't just circumcision that they were preaching. What was it? It was, it was legalism. It was works righteousness. It was a message that took all of the focus off of God and put it onto the audience. It was a message that idolizes the individual. You are what is most important. You are what is all powerful. You can save yourself if you just do all the right things. It's a false teaching that leads the listeners into worshiping themselves. And the thing is, when you worship yourself, when you make yourself the standard of how you're saved, well, then you can justify all kinds of things. You can, you can make it all about you, just as those teachers are making it all about them. So whether it's legalism and austerity like it is here in the Galatian churches or it's worldliness and license, it's really the same message and it's taking the focus off of the cross and putting it on yourself. So that was the first bad motive, self-promotion. The second is self-protection. So still in verse 12, Paul says, they want you to be circumcised only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul says they're cowards. And they know if they really preached the true gospel, they would 
they would be persecuted and they don't, they don't want that. They're afraid of that. Now, we don't know how exactly they would be persecuted. Likely, they're afraid of being persecuted by Jewish unbelievers, okay? So, so they think if they can kind of get squishy on their gospel details and they can sort of embrace this, you know, the trappings of Mosaic Judaism, then the Jews will leave them alone and they won't be persecuted. They can have Jesus, but they can also, you know, not be hurt by these Jewish unbelievers. Maybe that's what's going on. We don't really know. But what we do know from the Apostle Paul's own life, that as he went about preaching the true gospel, it got him persecuted everywhere. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was stoned, left for dead. And the persecution came from Jews and from Gentiles. It came from everybody. To the Jews, his message was offensive because it was a message of a crucified Messiah. And in that crucified Messiah, the Mosaic law was done away with. This law that they boasted in so much. And for the Gentiles, it was offensive because it was a message that said, you can only be saved through this crucified Messiah. Your other gods are no gods at all. And all of the wickedness that comes along with your idolatry, you have to put that away. And that was offensive to them. So wherever he went... He was persecuted. But notice what he was ultimately being persecuted for was the cross. You see that in verse 12? They're afraid of being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Why is the cross the source of our persecution? And it's true in our day as much as it was then. What is it about the cross? Well, to preach the message of the cross is to preach the reason for the cross, which is our sin. And they don't want to preach sin. That's how you can identify a false teacher. If you have stumbled on some guy's channel on YouTube and you're trying to decide if he's somebody that you can trust and or not, first ask us. You know, that's why you have pastors here, not on YouTube. We can help you discern if, if you're listening to a false teacher. But as you listen to them, just listen. Do they ever talk about sin? Do they ever talk about your sin? And by that, I don't mean that they say, oh, it's wrong for you to have low self-esteem. Or it's wrong for you to not take risks. Or it's wrong for you to not live your best life now. That's not preaching sin. To confront somebody with their sin is to say, you have offended a perfect and holy God by breaking his commandments. By breaking his commandments outwardly and inwardly. And you need to be saved. And you can't save yourself. False teachers won't preach that. They won't preach that one because it's not popular. Go back to the first point. You're not going to get a big crowd by telling people that they are sinning. But they would also invite persecution on themselves. I'm sure you've seen this. Some prominent false teacher finally gets to the point where, where he's invited to do an interview in some secular media Outlet And what's, what's the question? You know it's just coming when they're interviewing them. They ask about homosexuality. What do you think about homosexuality? And then you see these guys just squirm in their seats. And they tie themselves into all kinds of knots and they will not come out and say the one thing that God's word says, that that's sin. It's sin that you can be forgiven for, but it's still sin. But they won't say it. They won't talk about sin because they know if they do, they'll be canceled. They know if they do, they would invite persecution onto themselves, and they're cowards. They're not bold, they're not brave, they're cowards. 
And they're really in it just for self-protection. This goes into the last point in verse 13, self-deception. So we had self-promotion, self-protection, self-deception. In verse 13, even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So he's saying, they're, they're circumcised, they're telling you to be circumcised, they're telling you to keep the law, but they don't actually keep the law themselves. So what he's saying is they're hypocrites. And hypocrisy can take a few forms. There can be blatant hypocrisy, right? Blatant hypocrisy would be like the guy that stands year after year in the pulpit proclaiming God's word, and then he goes home into the privacy of his own house, and he defiles it. He defiles God's law. And that's an abomination to the Lord. He knows what he's doing. That's one kind of hypocrisy. And maybe that's what Paul has in mind here. Maybe Paul knows some specific ways where, where they are putting a burden on other people that they have no intention of keeping themselves. That they're just liars, lying through their teeth. Maybe. But given other parts of this letter, I don't think that's actually the kind of hypocrisy that he has in mind. Because there can be blatant hypocrisy and there can be very sincere hypocrisy. They think that they are keeping the law. They think that they are that great. And so they have no problem putting that burden on other people because they think they bear it no problem. They're self-deceived. And this goes back to that second point. Of course, they don't preach sin because they don't see it in their own lives. They're not searching themselves to see if they have offended a perfect and holy God. They're deceived. Paul says they're asking you to do something that they cannot do. If you go back to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Everyone who relies on works of the law, they're under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The implication there is that these people that are coming and preaching the law, they don't realize that they can't keep it. Sure, you can follow some of the outward expressions of it, but inwardly, we all fall short of God's perfect law. And so we are all under a curse. And they don't realize this. But Paul does. That's been the point of the book of Galatians, chapter 3.11. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So do you see, this whole letter, it's all coming back to the cross. And here, it's coming back to the cross. These, these false teachers, they won't preach the cross because it's not popular. They won't preach the cross because it'll get them in trouble. And they won't preach the cross because they don't have a category for the cross. They don't understand the cross because they don't understand their own sin. They don't understand the need for the cross. Why the cross? Why would God's Messiah let himself be arrested and beaten and whipped viciously and mocked why would he let his torturers put his torture instrument on his own back and force him to carry it 
to a place where he was hung up in the air, naked, in front of a crowd, mocking him, laughing at him, with nails driven through his hands and his feet, holding him there, baking in the hot desert sun for hours, thirsting. All the while, the weight of his body as he grows weaker and weaker is pulling down on his rib cage so that he's suffocating. He's having to pull himself up on those nails just so that he can get a breath until finally he breathes his last. Why would Jesus do that? Because that's what your sin deserves. Because you're that bad. And God loves you that much that he would give his son to go through all of that in your place for you. God loves you that much. And this is, this is the thing that makes me so mad about false teachers because what do they always say? Oh, God loves you. And so do I. That's their message. But how can you tell someone that God loves them and not tell them about the cross? That is where God's love is displayed. Because you can't come to that cross thinking you don't deserve it. You can't come to that cross thinking that your sin isn't a big deal. You can't come to that cross with with your self-righteousness and your pride intact. You can't come to that cross and worship yourself. You have to come to that cross confessing, that is what I deserve. I am that bad. And I don't even realize how much I deserve that. But I know that I have disobeyed God. I know that I have broken God's commandments. And I know that I deserve his wrath, his judgment. And I say, thank you, God, for Jesus. Who said, give me your sin. All of that sin that deserves death. And I'll die it for you. And I will be your Lord. I will be your God. It's all about the cross. These false teachers are ashamed of the cross. They're ashamed of the message of the cross. But Paul isn't. This goes to our next point. Verses 14 to 16 are the new creation. Paul says, verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. These false teachers are ashamed of the cross. Talking about the cross would would not bring them the things that they want. But Paul says, I have nothing else. I boast only in this, in the cross. Not my own righteousness, not my own good works, not anything but what God has done for me in Jesus. He talks about the world. These false teachers, they love the world. When the Bible says the world, it can mean a few different things, but one of the things that it means in this, can, in this sense especially is, is the system of the world and everything that belongs to the world. You could call it worldliness. 1 John and 1 John chapter 2 describes the world as the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in life. 1 John 2.16 says that these things are not from the Father. They're not from God, but they're from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. That's Paul. He says, I don't care about the world. I don't, I don't care about my self-promotion. I don't care about my popularity. I don't care about things that I can take pride in. I don't care about any of that. The world is passing away. In fact, I have been crucified to the world. And it, to me, I'm dead to that stuff. I live for something else. Look at verse 14 or 15. He says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. That is a massive conclusion to draw at the end of this book. Because remember, all of the focus of these false teachers has been on the, the priority of circumcision, the superiority of the Mosaic covenant. And Paul says, that's nothing. That matters not at all. And it's not just circumcision, it's uncircumcision. All of that stuff, that's old creation. And I am in this for the new creation. So we need to spend some time unpacking this idea, the new creation. Well, what's the old creation? The old creation is what? The world. It's the world, everything that he's been talking about. In fact, this whole world, this whole world that God made very good, but that was plunged into sin, it's fallen it's broken. You feel this, right? You feel that the world is not what it should be. There's something wrong with the world. There is. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the whole creation is groaning, waiting to be redeemed, to be made new. The old creation is marked by sin. It's marked by disobedience to God. It's marked by our own flesh working against us forcing us to not do the things that we think that we should do. It's marked by all of these bad influences from outside on us. It's even marked by the works of the devil. The old creation is marked by idolatry. Because we don't worship God, but we worship created things. And whenever you worship created things, it leads to works righteousness. The old creation is marked by this idea that we can fix the world. If we just try hard enough, at least I can fix myself. but you know it never works. This is the tension through the whole story of the Bible that this old creation is broken and, and it can't fix itself. And so that's why from the very beginning of the Bible, if you take the whole Bible together as one story, which it is, from the very beginning there has been this hope that God, the creator, will fix the broken creation and he's gonna make a new creation. He's gonna make a, a better creation, a redeemed creation creation. And so as you read the Bible, we keep on getting these glimpses, these visions of this, this new creation. And then especially when you get to the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, these other guys, they would be given by the Holy Spirit glimpses, visions of what it was going to be like in the, the last day when God fixes everything. They were, they were getting little foretastes, teaser trailers of the new heavens and the new earth. And what do they see when they they get these glimpses. Well, they see the creation restored. They see all the, the causes of that sin removed. They say it's gonna be like it's gonna be like a new exodus, where everybody is set free from their slavery to sin. They say it's gonna it's gonna be a place where Israel and Israel's king are preeminent. And that all the other nations of the earth are gonna come in and they're going to worship Israel's king, and there will be peace and a new Jerusalem. They see Satan being defeated. 
They see Israel's sin being atoned for. They see the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Everyone gets the Holy Spirit. They see a new sanctuary, a new temple where God dwells with his people forever and ever. They see a new covenant with God's people, a covenant that's not like the old covenant that's based on works that we cannot keep, but a new covenant empowered by God's Holy Spirit in us so that we can actually do what God is commanding us to do. Most of all the prophets saw the resurrection from the dead. That's how the prophets know that they're seeing a vision of the new heavens and the new earth as they see people raised from the dead. And the wicked are judged in that day and cast out, but the righteous are raised to live forever with God. So they say, okay, resurrection, that means the new heavens and the new earth. I got it. This is the new creation. It's coming. And they looked forward to that day. They never saw it. They would have these dreams, they would have these visions, they would write it down, they would tell us what it was like, but they never saw it. They still lived in this old creation. And the Apostle Paul says, it has arrived in Jesus Christ. The new creation is here. And you say, well, how how can Paul say that? How can he say something so audacious? When he talks about the cross and the power of the cross, he doesn't just mean that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, but that Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected, and he lives in that resurrection, eternal life right now. And Paul knows his Old Testament, so he says, that's it. Resurrection means end times. It's here. The new creation has arrived in Jesus And in fact, if you read the whole New Testament and you are looking through this lens, you will see that all of the New Testament authors, they are trying in every way that they can to say that all that stuff that the prophets saw, it's here now in Jesus. They saw a new exodus for freedom. Christ has set us free. They saw the preeminence of Israel and Israel's Messiah. They saw uh, the nations coming in to worship their Messiah. And they say, Jesus is Lord of all. And he has commanded us to go and make disciples of all the nations. And guess what? It's working. And they're coming in. They saw Satan defeated. They saw Israel's sin atoned for. We say that's the gospel. So the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh. A new sanctuary, a new place where God dwells with his people, a new covenant. That's the Holy Spirit in our life, beginning in Acts chapter 2. It's here now. And most of all, the resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so Paul says we are in the new creation. It's begun in Jesus. And if you have believed in Jesus then you are in Jesus. You remember this idea of our union with Christ, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus is the new creation already. And if you have believed in Jesus, then you have been raised with Jesus. And so you are the new creation. He says this very clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. And behold, the new has come. 
And you say, well, I, I look around and this doesn't look exactly like what the prophets were talking about. This doesn't feel like everything is fixed. No, it's not. And this is not something that the prophets foresaw. This is better. So we don't have to wait until the very end to experience the new creation. We get what's called a foretaste of it right now in this life. The Apostle Paul calls the resurrection of Jesus a foretaste or a first fruits. You know what first fruits means? It's like the first little sprout that grows up in the field after a long winter. It's not much to look at, but you know it's a promise. It's a promise that the harvest is coming. It's a promise for us. Just like Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. This is why we use this phrase that we love so much, the already and the not yet. Or if you want to impress your friends at parties, say inaugurated eschatology. The end times has already started in Jesus. And you read the New Testament, they say this, these are the last days. But it's not finished yet. We await the consummation. We, we await Jesus coming back and finishing what he started when he was raised from the dead, raising all of us, fixing the new heavens and the new earth, making this all right. But brothers and sisters, even now, we are a new creation. And that's what Paul says matters. It's not that old stuff. It's not that old system. It's not the works righteousness. It's certainly not the things that are going to pass away. Don't focus on these worldly things. Because it's not what matters. It's not what our Hope is in, our hope is in being a new creation. And Paul sends us out as new creation people. Just like Jesus was a first fruit, his resurrection was a first fruit for us knowing that there's a promise to come. Brothers and sisters, every one of you is a little first fruit in this world. You go out and you live that new creation life because you're united to Jesus and you live that life of walking by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You go into your homes and you go into your workplaces and you go to your schools and you love people like Jesus loved us. You're joyful when you shouldn't have a reason to be joyful. You pursue peace and you are at peace. You're gentle, you're faithful, you have self-control. You bear the fruit of the Spirit and this is what it's like. It's like you reached into heaven, you plucked a seed and you planted it here. And the people around you, they see the fruit of the Spirit and they get a little taste of heaven. And we pray that some people, when they get that little taste, they said, I want a mouthful. I want more of that. How do I get what you have? And then we preach the cross. We boast in the cross because the cross is where the new creation began. When Jesus came up out of the grave. So in terms of Paul's closing argument, I think we should look at verse 15 as kind of the knockout punch to these false teachers. You want to preach circumcision? You want to preach uncircumcision? doesn't matter. What matters is the new creation. That's what matters to me. And then in verse 16, Paul says, who's with me? Verse 16, he says, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. 
When he says, walk by this rule, that's just another way of him saying, believing in that. Believing that the new creation is what matters, not the old creation, not works righteousness, not, not these things in the world that will never satisfy you. Whoever is with me and has set their hope through the cross on the new creation, he blesses them. He says, peace and mercy. And that means peace and mercy can only be yours through the cross. He's blessing them. Peace and mercy. And then at the end of verse 16, he extends the blessing. And he says, and upon the Israel of God. And I know some of you in this room already know that that little phrase has caused a lot of debate. Whole books have been written on that little phrase. And we don't have time to get into everything that that means this morning. We did record a podcast. Me and Pastor Ryan and Pastor Drew, we recorded a podcast about the Israel of God and what that means for this relationship between the church and Israel. What do we think about ethnic Jews today? It's a fascinating podcast. It's like three hours long. Not really. It's like 40 minutes long. But it should come out tomorrow. So if you have more questions about this, go listen to that podcast. It should be helpful. But let me just say here, as we kind of ask, what, what does that mean and the Israel of God? Who's... Who's he talking about? It can, you can take that one of two ways. You can either take this as really Paul talking to two people, two groups of people, or one group of people. So some people would interpret this as Paul saying, peace and mercy be upon all of those who walk according to this rule, all of you who have believed in Messiah Jesus. And then when he says, and upon the Israel of God, he's referring to a subset within that community of people. Still people that believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they themselves are ethnically Jewish. They're Israelites. And so when Paul is saying, you're the Israel of God, what he's saying is, you're the real Israel. Why? Because you believe in Israel's Messiah. And people that hold to this position, they think when Paul is saying that, he's just kind of thumbing his nose at the false teachers. Because the false teachers would have thought they were the right Israelites. They were the faithful Israelites because they were following the Mosaic customs and circumcising their babies. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's old Israel. This is new Israel. Faithful, believing Jews. And so that could be what Paul is saying when he says, and upon the Israel of God. He's got a special blessing heaped on these believing Jews. That is not the position that I take. That's not the way that I interpret that. And again, we go into the podcast for reasons for that. But just limiting ourselves to the book of Galatians. And thinking about what the big idea, the big argument of the book of Galatians is, there's not a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. These false teachers were trying to draw that distinction. They were forcing Gentiles to basically become Jewish before they could be considered faithful. And Paul says that that doesn't matter anymore. There's there's not Jew or Gentile. He says that literally in chapter 3. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are all one in Christ. And then why has he been talking about Abraham this whole time? And saying, you Gentiles are the seed of Abraham. You're the offspring of Abraham. It would seem very strange to me that in his closing arguments, Paul would bring up a new idea that seems to contradict the flow that he's been making. And he would suddenly highlight the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And so again, if you want to buy me coffee and we talk about that, I would love that. And I have said that before, and you guys have taken me up on that. So please keep on doing that. I love talking about this stuff. But, but for me, I think what this is saying is that all of us who believe in Jesus, we are Israel. We're the Israel of God. And in either way that you take that, the point is the same blessings on you. Blessings on you, why? Because you earn the blessings? No. 
through the cross. Peace and mercy be upon you. We could talk a lot more about that, but we need to wrap up here. So let's go to this last point real briefly, verses 17 and 18, final words. So as I said, you can see verse 15 is the knockout punch. This is where he makes the the very clear conclusion that all that matters is a new creation. In verse 16, he blesses everybody that agrees with him. Verse 17, he has one more word for those people that would disagree with him. He says, 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And I love this so much. This is just so awesome. Paul is, he's over it, right? You see that? We've gone through the whole book. He has decimated their argument. And he says, go home. Don't bother me anymore. You know I'm right. I know I'm right. And if you want to talk, you come back when you have suffered for the cross like I have. That's what he means when he says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. That word marks in Greek, it's stigmata. It refers to if you were to brand like an animal. Okay, it's a, it's a brand mark. Or it could also refer to a tattoo. But what Paul is saying here is, in, in the ancient world, it was common for slaves to get a brand put on them or some kind of mark put on them so that you would know in their skin who they belong to. And soldiers, actually, in the Roman Empire, they would do the same thing. They would get a brand to mark their regiment and and what group that they belong to. So Paul is bringing up that idea, and he's saying, I bear the marks of Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I've got his tattoo on me. And what are his brand marks? You could just imagine him saying, look at the scars on my back from where I was whipped for preaching the cross. Look at this mark that I have right here where I got hit by a stone in Lystra. Look at these cuts right here from the chains when they put me in prison. I'm preaching the cross because I belong to Jesus and here are my tattoos. Here's how you know. Until you have that, go home. I think that's awesome. And we know Galatians was one of the first letters that Paul wrote He got a lot more tattoos. He got a lot more marks throughout his life. Everywhere everywhere he went, as I said, he suffered for the cross. But why? Because he knows that it's only by preaching the cross that God's elect are saved. Only by going and living that new creation life, hoping in the resurrection and proclaiming that this is the only way that you can be saved by being a true teacher is the church saved? And so even though it meant that he would be beaten, whipped, ultimately die, he was beheaded in the year AD 66 or thereabouts by the Emperor Nero for Christ, for preaching the cross. But he bore those marks gladly. Think of his words in Colossians chapter 124. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Brothers and sisters, this is an example to us. Let's go get some more marks. Let's go get some more tattoos because we are not ashamed of the cross, but we boast in the cross. And we preach the cross so that God's church 
would be saved for their sake. So as we go and as we hope in the not yet, living in the already, I leave you with this blessing from the close of this letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Yes, God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for giving your son to die for us and, and we confess our sins again, Lord. We know that you've forgiven them. Not by anything that we've done, but because of Jesus. And you've made us a new creation, those of us who have believed in you. So Lord, I pray that you would make us more like heaven, that your will would be done on earth as it is done in heaven, and Lord, that other people would be saved through, through us, through our preaching the cross, through our being faithful servants, faithful slaves, faithful soldiers in your army. God, we pray if there's anyone in this room right now that, that hasn't confessed their sins, they're still holding on to their pride or their self-righteousness, Lord, humble them and help them see how much you have loved us in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and respond. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all
Jesus? Do you have questions about the love of God in Jesus? Don't walk away from this place without, without confessing your sin. Let go of your pride. Let go of the things that you're holding on to. Behold the cross. Believe in the cross. Love Jesus because he loved you first. Said, if you have questions, ask somebody here. Anyone in this room would love to tell you why we love Jesus and about how you can love him as well. We'll also have people up front, like Ryan said, or you can email us, but, but don't walk away. Don't, don't feel that conviction right now and then just let it die. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit leading you church Jesus loves you God loves you and so do I but I know that because of the cross and I pray that you would go out and love others most of all by telling them about Jesus I think it's fitting as we finish this book to close again with this benediction from the book of Galatians as for all who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon you and upon the Israel of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great Sunday.